0: Turn our attention to advancing the gospel. That's my title this morning, Advancing the Gospel. Paul is going to give us six things, if you will, six parameters, maybe six guidelines for advancing the gospel. First of all, just thinking in terms of introduction, we first need to understand the necessity of advancing the gospel. The necessity. Paul would say in verse 3, "...with all praying also for us, that God would open unto us a door of utterance, a door for the message, logos is the word utterance, to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am also in bonds, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak." Now there are two oughts in these verses. There's an ought for Paul, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. And there's an ought for you. Let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer every man. Now an apostle ought to speak, and a believer ought to answer. Ought. The word ought expresses necessity. It can be a law of commandment from God that makes it necessary, or it can be something that is necessary to attain an end. Of course, that's the the meaning I think Paul expresses here, he ought to speak it clearly and manifest it clearly, the mystery of Christ, because God is using what Paul speaks to convert sinners, to bring them to faith in Christ. And that's our ought as well. We ought to answer every man for the same aim. We want to speak about Christ in such a way that God uses it To advance his his gospel, his kingdom, by bringing people out of the darkness into the marvelous light of Christ. Now when Paul says a door of utterance, what does he mean? In one sense, every day was a door for Paul. He never met a person, he never met a situation which he thought was closed and was not an opportunity. Whether he's in prison or out of prison. where he's in the marketplace or out of the marketplace. When he's traveling, when he's on land, when he's on sea. Every occasion for Paul is an occasion to speak the mystery of Christ. But here, a door of utterance, if we compare it to Acts 14.27, seems to be a door where people are coming to faith in Christ because often Paul spoke the gospel and people just got mad. In fact, that's why he's in prison for speaking the mystery. So a door for the message is a door of faith, a door where people are receiving the gospel. Acts 14.27, Paul's first missionary journey. He goes to Cyprus. He's sent by the grace of God by the church at Antioch in Syria. He goes, he preaches the gospel. Cyrus, Antioch, Pisidia, Iconium, Lystra, Derby. He returns through all those cities, strengthening the souls of the disciples. He gets back to Antioch, Syria. He gathers the church together. Verse 27. He rehearses all the things that God had done with them and how God had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. So what happened? Paul goes preaching the mystery of Christ. God is with them. God is in them. God is present. What does God do? God opens a door of faith to the nations. How does God open that door? He opens that door through the gospel that Paul is speaking. What has to happen for that door to open? God opens the eyes and hearts of men and women to receive the gospel, which the door was opened of faith to the Gentiles. Or as Acts 16.14 says, "...when Lydia heard these things, the Lord opened her heart that she attended to the things that Paul was speaking." Which is what? The mystery of Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ. So God opens a door. He opens a door for the gospel because He opens the door of hearts for men and women to receive that gospel. That is what Paul is praying for. What does he mean by the mystery of Christ? Well, we've implied he means the gospel of Jesus Christ. He alluded to this in chapter 1. Something that had been hidden in ages past, but now made manifest, which is Christ among you. The Gentiles, the hope of glory. It was something that was concealed by and large in the Old Covenant, which now is made known that the gospel is not just for the Jews. It's not just for the Israelite. It's for the nations. And so in Ephesians 3, 8, and 9, you remember Paul more specifically unpacks this mystery. When he says, when you read what I wrote, you'll understand my mystery, understanding of the mystery. He said, God made known and revealed the mystery to Paul, which in other ages was hid to the sons of men, but is now revealed by His holy apostles and prophets, by the Spirit, and here it is, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of His promise in Christ by instrumentality, the gospel. How do people come into the inheritance? How do they become part of the same body? How do they experience the promise in Christ? By means of the gospel message. God opens the heart, opens the eyes to receive the gospel by the Spirit and the Word. And therefore the necessity of the gospel is not necessary because we make it necessary. It's necessary in the plan of God because God has made it necessary in His plan of salvation to bring the gospel to His people, as Paul would say. In 2 Timothy 2.8, remember, Timothy, that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel, wherein I suffered trouble as an evildoer, even unto bonds, like he is here. But the word of God is not bound. All right, Paul is in chains, And he uses the metaphor towards the gospel, the Word of God, which is the gospel in that context. It's not chained. It's not kept back from doing something. It's not hindered from doing something. Now, Paul was hindered from going far and wide and large to preach the gospel. He was confined to one one space, one, one area. But he says the gospel is not kept back and prevented from doing something. So here's the conclusion. Therefore... I endure all things for whom the elect's sake. Why? That they may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with what? Eternal glory. How does the elect come into that salvation? The Word of God is not bound. Through the gospel, by the Spirit, opening the eyes, opening the door giving faith, and then bringing them to conversion by the gospel. We need to understand the necessity of the gospel in the plan of God because He has put it where it needs to be. There is no potentiality that somebody who needs to hear it will not hear it because the sovereign God of the universe is bringing His gospel, like He did through Paul, to the elect of God. Our role as Paul's is to answer as we ought So this necessity that we should experience is a necessity of God's plan of salvation where the gospel has its place in the conversion of sinners to eternal glory. If we don't see that, then we likely will become complacent. We likely will not participate. We likely will say, well, God's going to get the job done, and so He is, but how is He going to do it? By the mystery of Christ. To wit, God was in the world. In Christ. Reconciling the world unto himself. Not imputing their trespasses. Was not imputing it. To those that are in Christ. And has committed unto us. The word of reconciliation. How is God bringing. Salvation to the world. To the nations and people out of the nations. Through the word of reconciliation. Which was deposited to Paul. And has been deposited in the church today. This necessity also is a necessity born out of love. Not some external requirement, although we have many commands in the Bible. It's born out of love. Right? Now think of the illustration of two soldiers. One enlisted. One was drafted. Both have necessity laid on them. Both must go to war. Both have to go to the war. Both must go to battle. But there are two different oughts with these soldiers, aren't there? If you ask one soldier, why are you going to war? He said, well, I have to. I must. I was drafted. You ask the other soldier, why are you going to war? He said, I must. I must go to war. But you did it voluntarily. That must is the must of love for country, love for her honor, love for her freedom. Love for all that she stands for. He willingly says, I must go to battle. That's the must of Paul. That's the must of Jesus in dying on the cross. And that must be our must. We ought, out of the necessity of love for God, we want God's gospel to cover the earth. We want the impact of the gospel to be felt in our country again. We want the impact of the gospel to be known Among the nations. We want people to experience the love and grace that we have experienced in Christ. And what is God's plan for bringing that gospel or bringing that message? It's through men and women just like you. No matter how how small the sphere of your influence may be. just, Just how small it is, it matters not. This will transform how we live and how we view life under the sway of the Redeemer in Colossians 1 who's created everything and by Him everything consists. And He's made peace through the blood of His cross. Alright, that's the introduction. Let's look at six things. And we may not get them all today, but we'll work through them. Six participles we'll use. First, praying. We're going to need prayer. Continue in prayer. Watch in the same with thanksgiving, with all praying also for us. Paul is praying, asking the church to pray that he would ought to speak clearly. We need to be praying, God, that he would bless us to answer as we ought to answer. Right? We need boldness. We need courage. We need strength. We need wisdom. We need to know how to answer each particular person, because every person is not the same. And so we're going to need a lot of prayer. The word prayer means, pers- or, uh, continue rather, is a word that means persistent. Stick to it. Adhere to it. Devoted to it. Are you devoted to prayer? If you want a word picture, Mark 3.9, Jesus has multitudes around Him. It's as if He's about to be thronged by the crowd. He instructs the disciples to uh, have a small ship at the shore of the water, to wait on Him lest He be thronged. The word wait is the same word for continue. The ship is dedicated, consecrated, devoted to one task. The Savior's escape if He needs it, lest He be thronged. Are we dedicated, consecrated, devoted to the task of prayer? As Paul would say to the church, I pray to God without ceasing on your behalf. So this means we're praying persistently daily as it relates to Colossians, because this would fit the context of relationships, right? you ever want to know what to pray for? How are you doing in your relationships? How's your marriage doing? How's your family doing? Devoted to prayer. Lord, bless me to be that kind of man. Bless me to be that kind of woman. Because if not, it won't happen. We, we need the grace of God. And that grace is called upon by being devoted to prayer this is the power of the early church acts 1:14 they were all together and they continued in one accord and in prayer the word continued is the same greek word here those 120 names prior to Pentecost were gathered together in the upper room they were continuing in one accord which means to rush along in unison and how did they have this unity continuing devoted to prayer acts chapter 2 verse 1 the day of Pentecost has fully come, and they were in one accord in one place. It doesn't say they were praying, but I would speculate based on Acts 1.14. That's what they're doing. Because if they're to be in one accord, they must be praying and devoted to it, and they are in one place. Holy Spirit comes. They speak in tongues. What happens? 3,000 converted. Acts 2.42. These 3,000, they all continued steadfastly. It's the same Greek word for continue. They were devoted to the apostles' doctrine, to fellowship, breaking the bread, and praying. The early church and the power of the early church, of these no-name people. Tell me the names of the church. What are the names of 120? You know the name of the apostles. Tell me the names of the people that were turning the world upside down. They're just no-name people like you and me. What was the key? Prayer. They continued, devoted themselves to doctrine, to fellowship. Maybe fellowship groups. I know it's not in there. That's my take. But they were doing something beyond Sunday, right? To breaking bread. To prayer. Acts chapter 3 verse 1. Peter and John go up to the temple. The hour of prayer, which was the ninth hour. Why are they going to the temple? Because that's where the church is. What are they doing meeting in the temple? It was the hour set aside for prayer. Every day they had a prayer meeting. And what happened? A man that was lame from his mother's womb. Peter says, Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee in the name of Jesus Christ. Rise up and walk. 5,000 people are converted as a result. Then the scribes and elders get really hot in Acts chapter 4. And they threaten the apostles, if you preach again... You're going to get it. They go back to the church, tell them all that had happened, and then they lift up their voices in one accord, and do what? Pray. Pray. And great grace was upon all of them, especially the apostles, and many believed. What was the key? What was the... It was just prayer. Prayer. Acts chapter 6, the widows of the Grecians and the Hebrews were murmuring... The apostles decided it is not reason it does not meet for us to wait on tables. We will give ourselves. We will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. And the elders today must devote themselves to that, as much time as they possibly can, to prayer and the ministry of the word. So the apostles are praying and ministering the word. The people are praying. What's happening? The gospel is advancing through prayer, through prayer. So. The first very important thing we need to remember is prayer. Pray and watch in the same. Be on guard, be alert. Now to watch means to guard against temptation. Of course that would be beyond prayer, right? But Paul says being watchful in it. The word expresses to be alert, to give attention to detail. Okay? Do you give attention to detail in prayer? Are you alert in prayer? Matthew 26, Jesus uses the word with the apostles, Peter, James, and John, who went with him in the Garden of Gethsemane. He said, watch with me. But they fell asleep. And Jesus said, watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. The spirit truly is willing, but the flesh is weak. I can identify with that, can't you? My flesh is often weak. Now their physical sleep was pointing to something spiritually. We can be sleepy in prayer, right? Physically, right? If you're falling asleep every time you pray, then probably not getting those prayers up to God, so maybe you need to pick a time when you're not so sleepy. I've had to do that. But not giving attention to detail in prayer. For example, you remember the first time maybe as a child you prayed or maybe when you heard your child pray the first time. It usually went something like this. Dear God... Bless all people all over the place on all the earth. Now that was fine, but that's not much attention to detail, right? As adults, we want to get more specific. We want to know the who, the what, and the where of prayer. We pray for people by name. Do you know any unbelievers that you need to be praying for? Do you have detailed things to go to the throne of God to pray about and for? Are there problems in relationships in your life? Are you pouring out? Are you devoting yourself to prayer? Because God is saying that's the the way we tap into His grace. Now we're going to see there's more to be done than prayer. But it starts with prayer. with thanksgiving. Thanksgiving guards us against the, the disposition of complaining and murmuring and being discontent because God is always at work. God is always coming to our aid and He's coming to meet our needs in Christ spiritually and also physically through prayer. So we see the power of prayer. What about the priority of prayer? Now note again what Paul says. Pray for me I'm in prison. Now, what would your priority be if you were in prison? You know a good lawyer? Could you pray that? Get a good lawyer? Could you pray that God would influence these uh, people to to let me out of jail because I'm here unjustly? Paul was not there because he had done something wrong. I mean, I could think of a hundred things I'd probably pray before a door of utterance to speak the mystery. Now, beloved, this speaks to our culture and probably where we are as a church. Do you often put your own physical needs above the supremacy and the glory of Jesus Christ? It's an easy thing to do, but it's not something we should do according to Jesus in Matthew 6-9. When you pray, you pray like this, Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. God's name hallowed is holy, it's set apart, it's supreme, it's to be respected, revered, admired, honored, feared. When God's name is hallowed, what happens next? His kingdom coming. It came in Christ. The kingdom has been established, but it needs to keep advancing. So when God's kingdom is advancing and people are coming into the kingdom, what's happening? God's name is being hallowed. And then thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Second petition give us this day our daily bread. Now, if you don't get bread, you're in bad health. But your health and your safety are not supreme. What is the name of God and his doctrine are supreme. It's over my food, it's over my physical needs, it's over my healing, it's over everything. And Paul not only writes it, he shows it by example. All the things he might have prayed for are secondary. Now I don't suggest that he didn't pray for those things. I'm just assuming he probably did because I think he wants to be out of prison because he can reach more people. But everything he prays for, the priority of prayer, the precedence, is not his own well being. It's not get me out of these circumstances. It's not change my conditions. Those are okay prayers as long as they're second and not first. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Then you get what you need food, drink, and all those things that when we lack produce anxiety. Matthew chapter 6. The supremacy of God's kingdom and the advancement of His righteousness is priority and everything else, everything is secondary. And Paul shows that here in his own writing. How is it with us? What is the priority of our prayer life? What's the priority in our church prayers? Now we, we often take to the throne of God many requests for healing. And we should continue and will continue to do so. This is not a call for one or the other. It's a call for sequence, priority, and what should be first. But is it first in our hearts and mind, the priority of prayer, taking precedence, is, is God's kingdom, His glory, His name being advanced? When it is, it puts our needs in their proper place under the supremacy of God. We look back at Acts chapter 4 verse 29 the early church when they were threatened. They lifted up their, their voice with one accord to God. They recognized the Creator of the universe. They recognized His sovereignty from Psalm 2. Then they said, now Lord you hear their threatening would you grant safety and help so we could flee from Jerusalem. No. Grant it to thy servants that with all boldness they would speak the word. Now I do not mean to say that they Somebody didn't pray after that, keep us safe and, and help us in all the things we pray for. It was not priority in the early church. It should not be priority in our church. The priority is God's name in everything. And we need to verbalize that. God doesn't like to be assumed. Well, you know that, you know, well, you know that's just part of it. No. It needs to be said, right? Like the foundation of this building. Now you know there's a foundation here. Because you walk on it, but nobody ever talks about the foundation. I never think about the foundation until right now, because it's an illustration. (laughs) Never think about this foundation. God does not like to be taken for granted. He wants to be talked about. He wants to be first place. Not because He's trying to be, because He is. That what Jesus Christ might have preeminence in everything. And when He has the preeminence, then everything in our lives start to orbit around His supremacy in a way that's for our good. When we place God central, it's for the good of our own souls that we do so. So beloved, let us pray in a way where God is the priority. God is the focus. Like Paul made the gospel and advancing the gospel, the focus is of what he wanted the church to pray for. Of all the other things they could have prayed for, maybe did pray for Paul. Paul said, this is what I want you to pray. I'm chained. I can't go anywhere. This is what I want you to pray. The mystery of Christ, a door of utterance, that I may make it known as I ought to speak. Number two, walking. Verse five. Walk in wisdom toward them that are without. The participle redeeming is going to tell us more about what this means. We'll separate that one. Walk in wisdom. Walking in wisdom. Acting wisely. Now those that are without are not just outside of our church here, maybe in another church. That's not what he's talking about. They are outside of the church, outside of the kingdom, outside of Christ, outside of salvation. Now why would you want to walk wisely? Because you want those that are outside to come inside. Isn't that the aim? and somehow your walk can work toward that or against it against it you see unbelievers often hear first with their eyes before they ever hear you with their ears because the bible makes it clear they're watching you and they want to see that all this hubbub about the gospel and christianity they're seeing what it means to you so there are a couple of places that speak about the impact of your walk, which means your, your actions. Now be sure, something needs to be said eventually about the gospel, but it often starts with the way we walk. So 1 Timothy six one again with servants and masters, Paul would say to Timothy, when you teach, then teach this, let as many servants that are under the yoke, they're slaves, we talked about that last Sunday, Count their own, give their own masters honor. Why? That the doctrine of God in his name be not blasphemed, vilified, defamed. God is all concerned about his fame because he's famous, he's glorious. And so Paul says, Tell these servants to act in a way, to walk in wisdom so that God's name and His doctrine is not blasphemed by whom? Unbelievers, right? So to be in rebellion against those in authority over you for unjust reasons, to be critical, to to engage in a culture of maliciousness and backbiting against those in authority over you would not recommend the Gospel, but would, would defame the name of God and his doctrine. Titus chapter 2, verse 5 the older women are to teach the younger women to be discreet, chaste, keepers of the home, obedient to their own husbands. Why? That the word of God is not blasphemed. See, we can act so countercultural that is even frowned upon by a culture, even the evil beasts and slow bellies of the Cretes on the island of Crete or the Cretans, which Paul was instructing Titus about. Says what? Let your conduct be this way, so that God's word is not defamed by the way you live. And then finally, the one we've used multiple times, and it fits here, is First Peter two twelve. So listen to how Peter says it there, and I want you to hear the missionary impact on the way you live. The missionary impact. So Peter again says, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. A stranger and a pilgrim is a foreigner. which simply means if you're a foreigner, you're in a country where your citizenship is not. So we live as strangers and pilgrims. Our hope is in the world to come. Our hope is in heaven. That's where our treasure lies. And we're all kind of foreigners here. That doesn't mean you can't be a citizen and a good citizen. It just means our outlook is we're just sojourning and traveling through. On that basis, abstain from fleshly lust, where they're at war in your soul. As we've said before, here's the participle. Having your conversation honest among the nations, or the Gentiles, ethnos. Conversation is lifestyle, your walk. Honest means beautiful. See? You need to concentrate more about inner beauty than outer beauty. Outer stuff is okay. That's not the primary. Right? So that your lifestyle would be beautiful among the Gentiles. Who are they? Unsaved people. They're outside the kingdom. Why would you want to do that? So that, whereas they speak evil against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works, there's your conversation, good works which they shall see, because they're watching, glorify God in the day of visitation. All right. If we don't abstain from fleshly lust, as we've mentioned, when someone is complaining and maligning the government and talking badly about them in an inappropriate way, what do you do? You, You engage with them. Or when someone speaks evil towards you, you give it full force back to them. That's not abstaining from the fleshly lust, that's giving way to them. So we want to give way to them or abstain so we can live honestly among the Gentiles so that they will glorify God when He visits them. Now how does He visit them? We already made that known. He visits them with the Gospel in conversion. And so your lifestyle now is not working against the plan of God in salvation, but contributed to it because when they see how you responded to their slander and their evil words to you with grace. When God visits, they give God glory. Now, how would your works do that? Well, I think there's more to the story in 1 Peter, particularly chapter 3, verse 15. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man, the hope that is within you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience. See, when they've been beholding your good deeds, when they see how you respond, when they see something compelling and attractive about your disposition when nobody else seems to be acting that way, they're going to ask you about you being a what? A stranger and a pilgrim. Or about your what? Your hope. Has anyone ever asked you about your hope? Don't be discouraged. The conditions are coming where they likely will. There hasn't been much in our country of late in recent years that would give cause to see real stark differences. But the day is coming, isn't it? In a time of great hardship, difficulty, or even persecution like 1 Peter, your hope is now a stark contrast than how people are walking around you. And so your good deeds, your beautiful conversation, your lifestyle, your abstinence from the lust of the flesh, and you're speaking in ways that honor God, they see that and they're drawn to ask you, and what do you tell them? It's Christ. And you tell them about the gospel. So when we walk in wisdom toward them that are without, we are wanting them to see and to know the glories of Christ and so we want to live in a manner that what they see is a genuine reflection of Christ in us. Which doesn't mean there's no sin. If, if we were to conclude uh, that there shouldn't be any sin to see, then we're all in trouble, aren't we? But they should see a meek, humble spirit that's resting in Christ. And that expression of that rest is coming out in a, in a, in a way that's walking in wisdom toward those That are without. So we need to walk in wisdom. And the aim of that is still the gospel. We would answer. Next, the participle Paul uses is the word redeeming. So now he's going to get even more specific about this walk as to what he's talking about. So, guideline number three we got praying, walking, redeeming. Redeeming the time. Now, we've looked at this word in Ephesians 5 earlier. But now I want you to see it in the context of advancing the gospel. Redeeming the time. The time here is, again, kairos instead of chronos. So it's not just consecutive time, but moments, seasons, opportunities. That's how it could be expressed. Opportunity is a set of circumstances favorable to do something. If we're going to redeem those opportunities, what does that mean? Well as we mentioned this the root word of the word redeem is agora means the marketplace noun. So Paul is in Acts chapter 17 Athens, his soul is stirred because they're given to idolatry and what does he do? He goes into the market and disputes daily. the agora or I'll just do southern agora that's it the marketplace it's just the Greek marketplace. It's like maybe like a flea market. You're just people buying and selling. He goes there. That's where the people are. And he starts disputing. He starts witnessing the gospel. The verb form of this root word is you add a suffix to it. So it would be agorazo, which now means to buy. You know, you sisters don't just go to the mall. You're going to buy something. So this word is used in Matthew thirteen forty-four, where Jesus says, Again, the kingdom of heaven is likened to... A treasure hid in a field, the which, when when a man finds, he hides it, and goes back and sells all that he has that he may agarazzo the field, buy it. Okay, so you got the market, you got the buying, and now you got this verb, which is the root word agora, add the suffix, and now add a prefix which is ex, which you know means out. Like the exit sign, we get our English word from this Greek word means that's where you exit the building. All right? Illustration Black Friday. Some of you probably stay away from that day like it's the plague, some of you dive right in. Now, the point I want to make with redeeming is urgency. We need to cultivate a sense of urgency. By urgent, what I mean is repeated and determined attempts at doing something. And you can hear it in redeeming the opportunity, like a Black Friday sale, right? So you go to the market, the store, you're going to buy, but it's a one-day sale. I mean, the opportunity is one day. Now they extended, I know, cyber Monday and all that. They want more money. But typically, it's a one time a year. You get some massive deals, and there's a sense of urgency. Yes, I must confess, one year, years ago, I needed a laptop, and I waited until midnight in a line with my brother-in-law and bought the laptop. At least an hour. I mean, it was urgent. I needed it. This was a 50% off, reduced sale. I'd never do it again. Great sale. I felt the urgency that I waited in line for several hours. So we, we see this urgency in this word, redeeming the opportunity. Now, what is Paul saying? See, when you go into the marketplace and you buy, you don't leave the merchandise in the store. You take it with you. That's what X means. You leave, but you've got, you, you seize the opportunity. You've got the laptop. It's under my arm. I'm going home. Now, Paul could be saying, don't leave. Black Friday without a conversion, right? I mean, I don't think he's saying that. That'd be kind of awkward, wouldn't it? Get on the intercom of the store and say, Attention, ladies and gentlemen, my name is Mike Stewart. I'm not leaving here without a conversion, so be expected to me to talk to you. What is he saying? Don't leave behind in the marketplace of the moments of your life an opportunity to bear witness to Jesus Christ. There's a sense of urgency here. So that's going to require repeated and determined attempts at doing so. Right? See, it may not happen at one time. So how would that work out? See, that, that, that mother you see every time at your son's practice. You, know, you sit in the stands, if it's baseball, maybe in the gym, if it's basketball or soccer. That unbelieving mother you keep seeing. There's a moment. See? it may not be the first meeting may not be the second meeting but you want to redeem it the... you don't want to leave that opportunity to bear witness to Christ right or at work you know there are unbelievers at work at least one some of you may be in an all christian company but if there's one there's an opportunity So you don't want to leave, you don't want to go to another job yet. You don't want to leave behind the opportunity to bear witness to Christ. So that is going to require some urgency. It's going to require some effort because that may not happen on the first meeting. Or you may be on the college campus. Or you may go to the same store over and over again. See. See, what we have to do is recognize and bring together the the sacred, sacred and the secular, the kingdom of God, and that we're ambassadors for Christ in all of life, in every moment, in every season. Now, what makes circumstances favorable to do something like bearing witness to Christ? It's that Christ is ruling over those circumstances. David said in Psalm 31, 15 and 16, But I trusted in thee, I said thou art my God, my My times, plural, are in thy hand. And that's going to transform your outlook. And you're going to look through a new lens, through everything you do. So what that means is, when you go to Publix, that is no ordinary shopping day. Every single person in the building is under the sway of Christ and he's accomplishing his purpose through them. Be they unbeliever or believer. That transforms my public shopping into an experience that is extraordinary as long as I'm thinking about redeeming the time. Mothers, this transforms your mothering. There's something going on here that's divine and supernatural. You're no ordinary thing doing your mothering. This will make your day at work. You know, the routine, same old work, same old job. All I do is ship things for this company 20 hours a week. No, it transforms it. Because the God of heaven is with me. And He's accomplishing His purposes. How do you know that? Ephesians 1, 11, Being predestinated according to the purpose of Him who's working all things after the counsel of His own will. See. What is God's predestinating purpose? Well, He's predestinated to have many sons and daughters and to bring them by adoption into the family. What is His sovereignty doing? It's serving that purpose of predestination. There are no relationships accidental. That person in the grocery store, that's not an accidental encounter. The people you are working with, they are not there by happenstance, they're all there by divine decree. That mother you're sitting next to at practice, that is not an accident. You have no ordinary practices ever again. Because every person in your life is by there their by divine decree and sovereignty. Because all things work together for good to them that love God, to them that are called according to His purpose. What is His purpose for which everything works toward? For whom He did foreknow, He also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Which means, if many sons and daughters are coming in to be brothers of Christ... God's predestinating purpose is to bring them in by the gospel, which everything in the universe is working to serve that purpose in your life. Now, if I can think that way, when I talk to the clerk at the counter, maybe I want to come back and see that person again and again. Invite them to church if that's all I've got time to do. or Tell them something. Strike up a conversation but there's an urgency because opportunities can go and come right now if I were to confess to you when I go out into public my name is Speedy Gonzalez. that's just the fact my wife is amazed at how quick I can get through a grocery store she's texting me in five minutes saying oh Admiral one more thing to the list sorry I'm gone I'm out of there I don't even know if I saw a human being. That's not good. I mean, fast can be good, but it's not good. I need to stop and smell the roses, right? There's somebody in my pathway. God has placed there. Maybe this is the person. Paul just assumed everybody was the person because he spoke to people that put him in prison, right? And so when we're redeeming the time, we're cultivating urgency. urgency. And what we don't want to leave behind is opportunity. So that requires us to think and to recognize the sovereignty of God, to recognize His plan of adoption, and to be part of that plan because He wants through you to bring many sons and daughters into the kingdom. Now He's using His people all over the planet. So there with a lot of resources, a lot of help there, a lot of people. But don't despise the day of small things. Because God works in the ordinary, routine smallness of your life to do great things for His glory. And so, we need to be urgent in all that we do. Repeated, determined attempts to bear witness to Jesus. Next, speaking. Now Paul, again using participles, walking in wisdom, redeeming the time, speaking with grace. So we'll put these two together. Speak with grace and don't forget the salt. Always use salt. I'll never forget the salt. Grace can be deter- just translated here as loveliness, sweetness, charm, right? In all three of those words, the predominant thought is compelling and attractive. See? Now there's a balance here because we want to speak with grace, but sometimes even we speak with grace, we're not compelling, but we're repelling. But why? Because of the message. That's what we want to be repelling. If it is repelling, not because I'm so separate, I'm so indifferent, I'm so removed from people, I'm so set apart, I'm so consecrated that I don't want to get my hands dirty. You won't find Jesus doing that. In fact, Luke 4.21 They bore witness at the graciousness of His words. He was so compelling. He read the Scripture and He expounded upon them and His disposition was one of grace. Then what did those same people do? They wanted to kill Him. Now here's the point. It wasn't His disposition that repelled them. It was simply His words. He was gracious. He was friendly. We need to be gracious. The one way you remember this, Paul would say in Titus 3.2, he would say, Titus, be gentle and meek to all men, even the authorities on the island of Crete. Submit to them. Teach the people to submit to them. I know they're corrupt. I know they're corrupt politicians. Submit to them. Be gentle. Have a gracious disposition. In other words, how are you going to do that? Isn't that hard? You ever just get frustrated? Frustrated? Titus, remember what you were. If you can remember that we ourselves were sometimes foolish, disobedient, and deceived, serving all kinds of idols, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. And then what happened? The kindness and love of God our Savior appeared. How did it appear? The gospel. If you can but remember To be gracious to a transgender because at the root of your soul at the core of your being there's no difference. So you can get all self-righteous and act like you would never do something like that but what have you done? At the root of your nature it was the same lust and desire that chose out your idols as they are choosing theirs. You're no different. If you can remember that. You can be gracious to a transgender person and know that if they're repelled, it's not because of your disposition, it's what you say, right? Jesus was accused of being a gluttonous man and a wine-bibber, a friend of sinners. Why did they accuse Him of that? Now, they thought He was just like them, that He was a sinner, but He wasn't, but He certainly was friendly to sinners. Aren't you glad He got that accusation? He's the friend of sinners, right? Luke 5.30, they asked Jesus, why do you eat with sinners? Jesus said, they that are whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. That's like going to a doctor. What on earth are you doing being around sick people? (laughs) What, are you crazy? They need a doctor. Luke 15.2, the scribes and Pharisees murmured, because he received sinners and ate with them. You know what the word "receive" means? Companion. He was a friend to them, without compromising his message, because he told them the truth, but his disposition was gracious. So much so that in Luke 15:1, the publicans and sinners drew into Jesus to hear him. Now his message was compelling, but he was compelling. Could you imagine if he was like a Pharisee? Washing his hands all day long, keeping himself separate. Nobody can get near me. Nobody can touch me. No, he befriended the worst of the worst. Now, here's the balance when we're gracious and friendly, we don't forget to bring the word, right? Sometimes we can be so friendly. Sometimes I have that struggle. Yeah, I was a friend. I didn't say a word that I needed to say, right? So, friendly, gracious. And speaking the truth. So if they're repelled, it will be a repelling of the gospel, not a repelling of my disposition because I was mean spirited, unkind. So be gracious to unbelievers. All right, use salt. What does salt mean? Salt here is referring to seasoning. Uh, One man I read said, You ought to be salty and humorous, and forget it. (laughs) The only time I'm funny is when I'm not trying to be funny. I would, I would, it would not work for me. I don't think that's what He's saying. I think we engage in conversation. We don't act like you strange know, people. There are limits on that. Whatever the Word of God says about our speech has to guide that. right? Remember Luke 14 when Jesus said, Likewise, whoever he be that forsaketh not all that he hath cannot be My disciple. Salt is good, but if the salt is lost its savour wherewith shall it be? seasoned, it is good for nothing, it's not, it's not fit for the land or the dunghill, men cast it out, he that hath ears to hear, let him hear. Now what's he saying? He's using salt as a metaphor for the disciple, because he uses it in the context. So, How are we salt as it relates to discipleship? When we forsake all that we have, we are disciples, then we're salt. What does it mean to forsake? The word means a formal declaration of one's abandonment of everything. Yet you may still have everything that you abandon, right? The Bible doesn't call us to abandon everything we possess. But there's a way in which the Bible calls us to abandon everything we possess. As a declaration that we're followers of Jesus. That's what it means to be salt. Now, use the illustration, You illustration. Know. Sisters, when you cook, you could cook all the same foods. Men, you could grill all the same foods and use no seasoning. And in fact, the nutritional value would probably do what? Go up, wouldn't it? Leave that salt out. Leave those seasonings out. Where would my enjoyment go? Down. Get that hunk of breast meat off the grill, nothing on it. Put it in your mouth. Blah. Add some salt or your favorite seasoning. Now you enjoy it. See, when you make a formal declaration of abandoning all things as the ultimate source of your joy, you are now salt. You are salt. If the salt has lost its joy, its peace, its contentment, you're apostatizing. And that's what Jesus is addressing in Luke 14 because everybody was following Jesus. So He speaks these words... Because the tower builder and the king don't finish the battle and don't finish the building unless they're salt. And ultimately, their peace and their contentment and their joy are in Jesus Christ. Now, how does it come out in your speech? Always use salt. See, there's a man at work and he is just downing, criticizing, maligning, malicious about the boss, the supervisor, the government, everybody, and you do not engage in that. Now, you can speak to the evils of the day and acknowledge that this is wrong, that should not have been done, this is sinful, why it is, but there's something about your disposition. There's something about your outlook that is expressing that your peace is independent of inflation and your joy is independent of the pipeline across the country gives us lower gas prices. I, I, I want that back, and I want inflation to go down. But my peace and my contentment and my joy are not dependent on inflation. It's dependent on Christ, and He's superior. That will come out in your witness, and in your walk, and in your speech. Because although you will speak to the issues of the day and what is wrong, there's something about your disposition that expresses a deep contentment in Jesus even when things are really bad in your life and even when times you speak with tears. There's something that will come out in your disposition that shows this person has something different that I don't know anything about because they should be filled with rage and frustration and they should be attacking people verbally but they're not. Why? Because their speech is seasoned with salt. Incidentally, the word salt is perfect tense, which means something that happened one time in the past, and it keeps going. I rack my brain. What is that? keeps coming out in your speech. It's that out of the abundance of the heart, abundance of the heart, the mouth keeps speaking. And what's in the heart? The joy, the peace, and the love of Jesus Christ is in the heart. And when that's in the heart, it can leave the heart at times when it's in the heart. The salty speech begins to flow. And there's a different disposition because it's in your heart that's expressed, that they take note of. And then people will then do what? Next point. I'm going to fly through these two. This is not enough for another sermon, so we am going to get through these. What's next? Knowing how you ought to answer every man. Knowing. The word answer is not apologia like 1 Peter 3 15 and 16. It is a, a response that's always preceded by someone else asking a question. So it's a dialogue going on. That you know how to answer every man. Every man just means every man individual because every answer is not designed for every man. To know means to see, to understand, to pay attention on how to answer. So, three implications here. One, you got to know your audience, right? That doesn't take a lot of research. You can just talk to a person say they've never been to church in their life, or they have a religious background, or they're a Muslim, or they're a Hindu, but you befriend someone enough to care about, I know something about this person. So, now now I, I know where they're coming from. Secondly, you're answering based on what they're asking. Now, what this means is we need to stop answering questions that nobody's asking. You ever done that? Oh, I can't count the many times. You know, I just, it's like I go through my script. You know, I say, oh, okay, here, here, here's this, here's this, or, and start getting into theological fine points. They didn't ask that question. I have a big problem with that. Say, well, they didn't ask me that question. Put your hand over your mouth. What is troubling to unbeliever about Christianity? Would you be able to probe that? Can you ask the transgender? Or can you answer when they tell you what troubles them? See, the pat answer is, it's wrong, it's sin. You're correct. That won't get very far with it. They know you're going to say that. It's evil, it's wrong, it's sin. They know you think that way. You take time to be able to answer and hear what they say. What troubles them? Can you answer the question, what's wrong with loving someone that's the same gender? If I just want to be happy, can you tell me what's wrong with that? That troubles me that Christianity is not giving me what I want. See, wrong is not going to be helpful there. So we need to be able to answer the questions they're asking, which means we need to be gracious, befriending, salty, so that we know something about our audience because we're listening. Because in reality, we, are, we already know what's going on, don't we? The Bible tells us about ourselves and about them. But but what troubles them? Do you know how to witness to a Muslim, right? I could say one time, no, and I'm, I'm still learning that. And so this is... Uh, repeated attempts of urgency because it has to keep going, but, but learning something about this person rather than just start answering all these things. And it's like, well, I never asked you that question. That's interesting. But... So we're listening. We want to know. We want to answer the questions they're asking, which maybe means we ask some questions. You know? What is it? that what's, what's, What do you think about Christianity? Or somebody says, what makes Christianity so unique? Why is it better than all other religions? Would you answer that? How would you answer that? That might be a question. So we're listening, and thirdly, know then takes us back to Colossians 3.16. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. That's something we were going to know. Right? And you're not going to know everything before you get to the circumstance. We've got to trust God. We've got to learn. And we keep going and we keep going back to the Muslim, back to the people, and we're trying to answer the questions they're asking. But the Word of Christ has to dwell richly so that we'll know. If we're teaching and admonishing one another, that means we're learning how to do that. And if the Word of Christ is dwelling richly, then we're knowing, we're perceiving, we're learning how to answer those questions that God may use as the catalyst to take them from outside to inside. Right? getting to the gospel we always to get back to the gospel but there are different paths to get us to that point all right and then lastly declaring what god is doing now this is important i think we declare what god is doing we're going to cultivate a, 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 an environment where this is not unusual and odd and once every five years but it's just something that's kind of happening in the body of the church in christ Right? So listen to what Paul says. Verse 7. All my state shall Tychicus declare unto you. Now why didn't Paul declare it? We could guess. You know, in Philippi, he did declare what was happening in prison. He doesn't tell him here. Could be it would have compromised him or them in some way. I have no idea why. But he sent two men. One Tychicus, a faithful minister and fellow servant of the Lord, whom I've sent for this purpose. He's going to Make known my affairs. He's going to make your affairs known to me, and he's going to comfort your hearts about what's going on with Paul. And then Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they shall make known unto you all things which are done here in prison. What was going on in prison? The gospel was being proclaimed. See, We need to be declaring what God is doing. All right. So the mother that uh, has befriended the unbelieving mother at the practice, she makes a prayer request one Sunday, one Sunday afternoon, one Bible study, or in the fellowship group, and says, "God has given me an opportunity. I want to redeem it, but I'm I'm nervous. I, I haven't done this many times. I'm, I'm downright kind of scared. So I ask that you pray for me. Let's pray right now. Yeah. Anybody ever nervous about what to say?" All the time here, nervous. You know, I'm going to say the wrong thing, say the right thing. So, pray. Brother stands up and says, there's this coworker I've been witnessing to and he seems open to the gospel. He's thinking about it. He says he's thinking about it. So, could you all pray that God would open his eyes and that God would give me the words to say as I try to redeem the time. So what's happening? We're declaring what God is doing here. See? We're making it known. And what that does, it is encourages boldness. It encourages us to be looking for opportunities. And it causes us to rejoice in God who's at work in our lives to speak the mystery of Christ or the gospel. So let us declare to one another let us make it known in the assembly, in the church of God. Let us make it an occasion of prayer that we let others know how we need prayer and what's going on. And when God turns people, make it known so we could rejoice in God our Savior as we seek, as we all, to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for Your Word this morning. We would all confess we have much growth here that we need, much we need to look at and turn from and to and turning to You. We thank You, Lord, that Your grace has redeemed us and that You brought us by the Gospel to conversion and that, Lord, You're with us and You're working among us. So I pray that You bless our outlook to change We would have a sense of urgency, repeated and determined attempts at redeeming the time. We would pray and devote ourselves to prayer concerning relationships and concerning advancing the Gospel. That the priority would be Your name and not our health and safety, although that is part of our prayer life. And that, Lord, we would be gracious and friendly and salty and to know how to answer. And that we would declare Because if we're praying, we expect you to do things because you said you would. And so we expect to have occasions to declare to one another what God is doing and how we need prayer for the purpose of bearing witness to your glory, to the intent that now into principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known through the church, the manifold wisdom of God. Make it known, Lord, through us in our relationships, in our love, in our witness, in our walk, so that sinners would glorify You in the day You visit with Your Spirit and with Your Word. Make this a reality in our hearts and lives and in this church. We beg You, in Jesus' name, Amen.